And I was really praying that the weather would hold so I could get back this morning. <laughs> it's always nerve-wracking to travel on a Saturday when I want to be here on a Sunday. Well, let's, um, let's pray, and then we will dig into the book of Proverbs. Father, we want to pause and acknowledge your absolute sovereign greatness over all things. You are the God of the universe who reigns supreme over all things. You are the God of the universe who sent your Son to be the incarnate expression of all that you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you dwelt among us, revealing the character of the Father, going to the cross, rising from the dead. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you indwell the body of Christ, your church. We welcome you here this morning. We welcome your presence. We welcome the sense of your goodness, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for the privilege that we have of opening up your word. We thank you, Lord, for these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've been going through the book of Proverbs, and uh, since today is uh, sort of the Sunday before 4th of July, I was thinking about John Adams, and John Adams talking a, a little about the culture of our Constitution and its relationship to our country. Our Constitution, he said, was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. I think about that, and I thought, all right, well, let's, let's talk about um, the moral fabric of good leaders. Now, you may be here this morning, and you think, hmm, I'm not sure I'm a leader. Maybe you think I don't lead that many people, so maybe I don't qualify as a leader. Well, you know that Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, would push back against that in a big way. And Solomon's thinking, every one of us in this room lead in some capacity. Maybe we just lead ourselves. Maybe we just lead our families. But maybe we lead a small business. Maybe we lead a practice. Maybe we lead a division. All of us at some level are leaders. And what Solomon does in this passage is he shows us, he shows us the character of a good leader is a character that has moral fabric. Now, uh, a couple of months ago, I had the privilege of delivering the commencement address at the Oklahoma Wesleyan University School of Nursing. And so I, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I prepared it. And then I got curious. What do other people say at commencement ceremonies? So I, I did the Google search, and it showed up pop icons like Stephen Colbert, like... Um, like Ellen DeGeneres and so on. And I thought, well, what, 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 did, what did they say? And I read four or five or six of these things, and I was blown away by the fact that they were very, very hesitant to give any advice because any advice might be construed as morality, and they would not think about imposing their morality against somebody else. Very hesitant to give any sort of advice. And that's the ethos of our culture. Our culture is very hesitant to impose any form of morality on anybody else for fear of offending them. I read a, 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 a <clears throat> the summary of a Gallup poll recently, and, uh, and here, here was the, the really salient quote out of the Gallup poll. Americans continue to express an increasingly permissive outlook on what is morally acceptable. Their views on 10 of 19 moral issues that Gallup measures 
are the most indulgent to date. The percentages of U.S. adults who believe that sex between unmarried people or doctor-assisted suicide or pornography and polygamy are morally acceptable practices have tied record highs or set new ones this year. Leaders do not want to impose morality on others. Or if they do, they don't want Christian morality to be part of it. And yet in this passage, Solomon is going to tell us that if you want to be a godly leader, if you want to be a good leader, good leaders possess moral fabric and they lead on that basis. There's something else going on in the book of Proverbs, though, as I've mentioned several times, and that is the word wisdom suggests that there is a moral fabric to the universe that God has created. And you see that if you do a word study on the word wisdom. Wisdom suggests that God has built into His universe a fabric, a moral fabric, a way things are based upon His character. And those people who are wise people recognize what that moral fabric is and they submit to it. People who are not wise deny that moral fabric and God allows them to reap the normal and natural consequences. Leadership, leadership, good leadership, leadership that God uses is a leadership that recognizes there is a moral fabric to the universe. So let's read the passage in its entirety. And I want you to notice as I read this, <clears throat> the number of times the word king is used. That's why we say this passage is about leadership. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. And, he weigh, and all the weights in the bag are his, works, are his work. It is an abomination for kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there's life, and in his favor, his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. He's talking about the king, and by extension he's talking about leaders. But let's, let's dig into it. First of all, we, we'll look at the leader's beliefs in verses 10 and 11. And what Solomon says here is that ideal leaders boldly embrace the moral standards of the Scripture. Again, an oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's, and all the weights in the bag are His. Now, let me, let me zero in on why this applies to leaders. When we think about kings, we think about these guys, Caesar Augustus, King Henry VIII, we think about guys like Louis XVI, the Sun King, or Suleiman the Magnificent. These were kings that we can't relate to. These are leaders we can't relate to. They're different kinds of people. When God talks about his leader, his leader is different because God's king was supposed to write out the law and hold that law with him at all times. Now, what would that have done to the king? That would have ensured that the king knew the law. That would have ensured that the king was memorizing the law. And because it was near him at all times, it would affirm the idea that when he was in doubt, he would go back to the law. His whole orientation was, I lead on the basis of God's revealed word. That was, that was the idea. 
Now, we, we just dispense, uh, we, take, we easily take this into our culture, um, dispensing with the idea of these other ideas of kingship. And, and, and think about you, the moment you came to Christ, you became a spiritual leader. If you're a husband or a wife, you know there's a dynamic interplay between how husbands lead wives and wives lead husbands. Very dynamic. If you're a parent, you know that you lead your kids. If you're a child, you know that a Christian child can exert leadership on his or her mom and dad. Spiritual leadership becomes an organic thing once you come, come to Christ. And recognizing the organic nature of spiritual leadership, what wise leaders do is they strive for leadership that is God-centered, that is Christ-centered. I'll give you, give you a, a quick example. Um, about 12 years ago, um, we were talking with somebody who knew our daughter at, Southern, at, at, um, at Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma State University. And we were out to dinner with this person, and this person casually said, you know, your daughter is a real spiritual leader on the campus. Now, our daughter is not, is not like a leader in the charismatic sense. She's not a leader in the dominant sense. Our daughter is quiet and sweet. And I said, well, t tell me about that. And this person said, within the Greek system at OSU, her kindness, her commitment to Christ, exerts a gentle leadership that, ha that has shifted the culture of her house. Now, that's, that's a, an example of spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is not a leadership of position necessarily. It is a position of influence that comes about because of who you are in Christ. And that's the idea that he wants to convey. Now, with that in mind, let's probe how you bring moral character into that environment. It begins with our, with our words. Go back to verse 10. An oracle is on the lips of a king, and his mouth does not sin in judgment. If you want to be a good leader, you begin by the words that you say. How are you using your words? How are you conveying truth to people? How are you using words to influence people that you are leading? You begin with your words. Good leaders use words on the basis of God's objective moral standards. Now, why is that? That's how God works. God speaks forth words of truth. Sometimes God speaks forth words in judgment. Sometimes God speaks forth words of information. Sometimes He speaks forth words of wisdom. Sometimes they're words of grace. But a good leader is striving to communicate the way God communicates. It is an, an oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. You say, easier said than done. I can't do that. Sometimes I sin with my mouth. Join the club. We all do. We all do. We're fallen human beings. But the vision is before us. Good leaders strive to make their words correspond with the wisdom that God manifests in the Scriptures. I'll tell you that a lot of, a lot of believers do not value this trait. They don't. And I've heard, I've heard, I've heard people say, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes I don't do it right. Big deal. Well, what Solomon would say is, if you want to lead... 
you want to lead, begin with your mouth and let that affect the nature of your leadership. Now he moves from our words to our worldview, and he says, a just balance and scales are the Lord's, and all the weights in the bag are his, are his work. So we're in Morocco earlier this year, and my grandson needs some oranges, some bananas, and some other fruit. So we go to the fruit stand. We buy the fruit in the fruit stand. And it's not like they have these little, these little um, you know, when you buy fruit here, they have these, these little things that have the number, like in the computer system of the fruit. No, the way they do that is they, they, you put the fruit in the bowl and they measure it out. And there are the weights on the other side. Now, how do I know that those weights are accurate? How do I know that they haven't put, you know, some extra, they soldered some extra weight underneath there and they're not accurate? I don't, I don't know that. I don't, I'm trusting that those weights correspond to the objective measurements that are used in North Africa, right? So that's the idea that Solomon is trying, trying to say here. A just balance and scales are the Lord's in this sense. There is an objective way to measure morality. There's an objective way to measure morality. God owns those standards. He owns those measurements. You know, we have two basic units of measurement in the world these days. We have the metric system, which is used over the entire world, right? And then we have the imperial system, which is used in the United States, in Liberia, and in Myanmar. I was a little surprised at that when I, when I, when I, I discovered that. But here's the deal. A pound in the United States is a pound in Myanmar. It is a pound in Liberia. A kilogram in London is a kilogram in Beijing. It is a kilogram in South Africa. The units of measurement are standardized. And what Solomon means in this proverb is that God owns the standards of measurement. God gets to decide what is moral, what is ethical, what is immoral, what is unethical. For instance, God's vision for sexual ethics is the same for people in Seattle as it is for people in Syracuse, as it is for people in Singapore, as it is for people in Moscow. God's standards for his sexual ethics are the same. They're not culturally derived. He owns the standards. He's the creator. God's vision for business ethics are the same for the people of Albania as they are for the people of Alabama. God's vision for verbal ethics are the same all over the world. I realize that there are differences in cultural expressions of these things, but the standards are the same. Moral standards are God's. Now, <clears throat> The point is that good leaders and godly leaders choose to operate on a biblical worldview. And guess what? That's going to put believers in Christ in the crosshairs. We see that with the prophet Daniel. Here's a guy who was with the most gifted leader, one of the most gifted leaders in the ancient world. The guy is probably in his 70s or his 80s, and he's operating under a pretty good king, pretty good king. But he's in the crosshairs of his other peer leaders. 
And the leaders go to the king and they say, make a law that says nobody will pray to anybody except you for 30 days. King says, okay, I'll do that, signs that into law. And, da and Daniel says, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Morality is objective. Morality comes from God. Morality is something that I will adhere to no matter what happens. And he gets put in the lion's den. And there are a lot of, a lot of believers who are, are, you know, in the proverbial lion's den because they've said, look, I am going to follow after the objective moral standards of the Scriptures. That's going to be how, how, I, how I operate. The point is, morality flows from our Creator God. The weights and the bag are His. He owns the standards. Now, that's the belief of a leader. Now, we move to the leader's behavior. Ideal leaders live out the moral standards of Scripture joyfully. It's not that like they live them out hesitantly. It's not like they live them out and they're embarrassed. It's not like they live them out and they're, and they're, they're secretive about it. They live out these things joyfully. Now, in the world that we live in, uh, Christian leaders have to be extremely wise about how they live that out within particular cultures. They got to be wise. This past weekend, when I was uh, talking to the father of the bride, he told me that he says, I've, I've lived in Saudi Arabia for many, many years. I am a follower of Jesus. Everybody knows that I'm a follower of Jesus, but I am extremely wise about how I live out my faith in Christ in that country. Extremely wise. Nevertheless, Ideal leaders joyfully live out those moral standards um, of, of the Scriptures. Here's the verse. It is an abomination for kings or for leaders to do evil. For a throne, or I would say the leadership of that leader, is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and the king loves those who speak what is right. What he means by that is those who speak what is right within the circle of his leadership. So, um, notice we're still talking about leaders. We're still talking about kings. And um, here's the problem. We all, we all know that leaders um, should not do evil, but they do, right? And the higher up they are, sometimes the worse evil that they do. I read a very interesting article uh, last week about Washington, D.C., and many people have wondered how long-term senators and congressmen in D.C. can go into D.C. leadership as men and women of very modest means and leave 20 years later multi-multi-millionaires. How does that happen? And what this article said was that basically it's insider trading. And what they said was that, you know, that Congress passed a bill that would affect the airline industry. And these leaders knew that they could profit from the stocks in that industry. They would buy up the stocks. Conversely, if they knew the stocks were going to go down, they would sell off the stocks. Well, that law in 2012, 20, a law was passed in 2012 that made that illegal. Problem solved, right? Problem solved. Mm. Well, less than a year later, Congress fast-tracked a bill using a procedure called unanimous consent that ignored or reversed large portions of that bill, and the president signed it into law in 2013, and now it's back to 
insider trading with caution, with caution. So we, we all know leaders can be untrustworthy, right? We all know that. We all know that they should not do evil, but they do. And even Solomon, we know from the book of First and Second Kings, Solomon, his leadership trended toward evil. Even Solomon, who wrote this, did not follow this later on in his life. It was hypocrisy, but the hypocrisy is a lesson to us. And the lesson is that if we're going to be good leaders, our, our walk has to match our talk. Our behavior has to match our belief system. If we're going to be leaders worthy of being followed, our behavior and our belief system have to coalesce into one. Will we always do that perfectly? Obviously not. We're not going to do that perfectly. But growth in Christ means that those two things progressively come together as we grow in Christ. Now, some benefits to this when this happens, when belief and behavior come together. One benefit that, that happens is that our leadership gets established. Notice he says, it's an abomination for kings to do evil, for the throne, and by that he means our leadership is established by the character that we bring into that leadership environment. Now, here's, the, here's an interesting thing. Think about the throne he's talking about. Um, pause that. Uh, the king, uh, this is King Solomon. The king also made a great ivory throne. This is Solomon's throne. He made an ivory throne. By the way, if I had a great ivory throne, I would not cover it with gold. I wouldn't do that because ivory in itself is very, very beautiful. But he covered it with gold because he had so much gold and ivory and wealth, he didn't need to worry about any of that stuff. He overlaid the ivory throne with gold. And not just any kind of gold, the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests while the 12 lions stood there, one on each, side, each end of the step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any other kingdom. In other words, when he says that a king's throne is established in righteousness, I, he had to have been thinking about that throne. Now, here's how you would illustrate that throne. And here's a picture of the Queen of Sheba going up Solomon's throne. How are you feeling as you're walking up Solomon's throne past the lions to the throne of King Solomon. You're thinking, danger, 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 danger. This king is as powerful as a lion. Don't offend the king. But how is that throne established? Was it established through evil? No, but he's saying it was established through righteousness. In other words, the reason why my leadership got established in Israel was because I had the character of an ideal leader, the character of a, of a very good king. If your walk matches your talk, your leadership within an organization will become established. Now, as soon as I say that, what I realize is, okay, what are the limits to that? Because you say, I, I know people who did the right thing in their organization, they get canned, they get fired. They get fired. So what are the limits to that? I asked myself that same question, and I was reading this book by Tom Doyle called Standing in the Fire. This is a story about Christians in the Middle East who are persecuted for their faith. 
And in story after story, he describes believers whose leadership was established by righteousness and they were persecuted. And what he, what he said was, even though they were persecuted, it's amazing the impact that these leaders had on people in the Middle East who saw their leadership in persecution and became Christians. Or, or they were persecuted badly and God engineered a situation in which they were able to come to a different place and lead with excellence because they've been persecuted and because they stayed close to Christ in the persecution. So when it says the king's the king's leadership is established through righteousness. It's not like a health and wealth, prosperity gospel kind of a thing. What he's talking about is organic spiritual leadership is established by righteousness. That's one, one benefit. There's, there's another benefit. And the other benefit of leadership that establishes, that is established by character, is that you shift the culture around you. I love this. Righteous lips are the delight of kings. He loves who speaks what is right. That is a proverb about culture. Good leaders value culture. Good leaders sustain culture. Now, th think about culture for a second. When I go into Aldi, the food store, I feel something. It's the culture that I feel. When I go into Trader Joe's, which I think are owned by the same parent company, I feel something entirely different from Aldi, and I like what I feel in Trader Joe's. I love Trader Joe's. When I go to Food Pyramid, I feel something different than Aldi or Trader Joe's. I can't put it into words, but I feel it when I get there. And then when I go to the mecca of all grocery stores, <laughs> Central Market in Dallas, you know, and I'm, I'm awed by the array of so many things, capers from all over the world and olives that are exotic. I feel something, again, something a bit different. Cultures, you can't necessarily describe the culture immediately, but you feel something about that culture. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. So a king hears righteous lips and that describes something about the culture. And the kings love it when the culture corresponds to what the kings desire. They love it. They love it. And when Jesus came into the world, he came to shift cultures, right? The culture is the sum of attitudes, customs, and beliefs that distinguishes one group from another. And Jesus came to shift cultures in a Godward direction. John 1.14, we beheld Jesus' glory, His manifest excellence. That glory or that excellence was displayed as a culture of grace and truth. Wherever Jesus went, He shifted that culture to a place of grace and truth. Truth, there are standards. Grace, there's latitude when people fail. Truth, this is what we aspire to. Grace, we learn from our mistakes. It's a culture of grace and truth. He shifted, he shifted the culture. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted 
or as Beethoven composed music, or as Shakespeare wrote poetry, he should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, now here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. What is he talking about? He's talking about a leadership that shifts culture in a Godward direction. No matter where you are, you can do that. And leaders who pay attention to their behavior will shift culture in that kind of a direction. Um, leaders love it when followers tell the truth. Leaders love it when people act with authenticity. Leaders love it when people learn from mistakes. Leaders love it when conflict is resolved with skill. When a leader sees the culture reflecting what he or she desires, they love it. And you as a leader can shape culture if you do that. I'm blown away by what happened with Corey and Betsy Ten Boom. They were housing Jews in their watch shop in Harlem. They got placed into a concentration camp. They got placed into a barracks that was filled with fleas. None of the German guards would go into that barracks, so they did not want to get the fleas. They had a Bible in that barracks that was not discovered because of the fleas. And at night, Corey would lay on her bed, and she would read the Bible. And the Bible would get translated from Dutch into German, from German into Swiss German, from Swiss German into Romanian, from a Romanian into Italian, from Italian into whatever other languages were represented there. And what Corey Ten Boom said was this, in the hell of that concentration camp, there was a little bit of heaven as the culture of God's Word gave hope to these women who had despaired. How do you shape culture? Shape culture by being a leader whose beliefs correspond, whose behavior correspond to his beliefs. And those beliefs recognize the moral absolutes of the Scriptures. Now we move to the third phase of this passage where Ideal leaders demonstrate grace and truth even when, when people fail. Even when people fail. A king's wrath is a messenger of death. Now, I, I read that as I was preparing for this message. And then, over the weekend, I read Stephen Pressfield's book called The Gates of Fire. It's about the Spartans defending the gates of Thermopylae from the Persian hordes. It is an amazing book. It's an amazing book. And it, it riveted home to me the fact that leaders in the ancient world were brutal. We, we talk about, you know, our, our rights. We have rights, our entitlements. We need to have this. We need to get this. This is not fair. Try that on Xerxes. Try that on Darius. Try that on the, on the king of Sparta. You get your arm lopped off or your head lopped off. The ancient world was incredibly brutal. When he says the king's wrath is a messenger of death, he means it literally in the ancient world, and he knew because he was the king. He had the power to kill. A wise man will appease it, which means, which means in a righteous leader, his anger is capable of being appeased. Solomon's anger was capable of being appeased. 
and a righteous leader is capable of having his anger appeased. Um, isn't God that way? Isn't God the ultimate king? Doesn't he, he create a situation where his anger can be appeased in the sacrificial system in the ancient world? If you sinned, you could bring a cow or a goat or a bull and lean your weight on that cow, goat, or bull and have it be sacrificed. And the transfer of guilt from me then to the cow meant that the anger of the Lord could be appeased. Remember how God says that the smoke of the sacrifice is like a soothing aroma to him, using a very human illustration to describe God's anger over sin is capable of being appeased through sacrifice. And what do we, what do we know about Jesus? You know, that Jesus' sacrifice was the, the ultimate appeasement of the Father. The theological term propitiation literally means that the Father's wrath over sin is fully satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. God is capable of being appeased through the sacrifice of His Son. Does that mean God has no standards? No, He has standards. The Ten Commandments, the commands of Scripture. But His wrath can be appeased through sacrifice. So what kind of a leader are you going to be? You know, a good leader is a leader who owns grace and truth. But here's the deal. In organizations, truth generally prevails. You have standards. You have objectives. You have things that have to be done. And it's a wise person who respects the standards of the organization and a wise leader who enforces those standards and provides a place for grace when things go south. And then he uses the, he uses the illustration uh, in the light of a king's facer's life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring forth the spring rain. When a good leader uh, is, is appeased, there's a sense of joy. There's two faces, you know, that reflect the joy that a king might have when his anger has been appeased and his favor is upon his followers. I, we have this picture somewhere um, of me receiving a present one Christmas morning. I did not think my family would get this present for me. And they saved it till last. And one of my kids took the picture at just the right time. I opened this, I opened this present up and I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. My family got this for me. This is incredible. And I, I even teared up a little bit. And one of my kids said to Cindy, I think he likes it. <laughs> I think he likes it. You know, when you feel the king's favor, you feel like it's going to be okay with me. And good leaders have the, uh, have the ability to demonstrate that favor to the people that they're, that they are, that they're, that they're leading. Um, he also says it's like the spring rains, you know, that bring refreshment and nourishment reading a story uh, right now about a special operations unit in Iraq and Afghanistan that flies, that flies drones over various different parts of, it's a, it's a fan, new, brand, new, brand new book that just came out, a fantastic story about a guy who had to go up through the ranks of this really hard special forces unit. And obviously there's objectives, there is truth. There are standards. Had to meet those standards. 
And his commanding officer said, don't screw up. Don't screw it up. But among those who reached that level, he said, all of us were learning from our mistakes. All of us. And once we were there, that became the way that we, we learned how to do things. And when the commanding officer said, jackpot, jackpot, he said, I knew I'd accomplished my job. Well, there's an element of grace and truth even in that story. Good leaders combine those two things. So leadership is a little bit like Jenga. I don't know if you ever played the game of Jenga, but you know, you, you pull out these little blocks and you pull out the blocks and, um, and if you're not careful, the blocks all fall over. If you pull morality out of those blocks, you jeopardize the stability of the tower. If you want to be a leader, a leader that God uses, pay attention to the objective moral standards of the Scriptures. Will you fail? Obviously. But that's the vision. And the Holy Spirit gives you the power to fulfill that vision. Now, as we transition toward communion, um, I, I, I want to read, read, read one great verse out of, out of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is traveling with the disciples. Um, he's raised from the dead. And um, he comes to the house and they stay, say to Jesus, hey, stay with us. It's getting to be toward evening. The day is almost over. So Jesus went in and stayed with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, Jesus took the bread and blessed it, acting as the host. And he gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus. Jesus wants us to recognize him in communion. And so as we, as we take communion, I want to encourage you to have a mindset that says, Lord Jesus, I want you to reveal yourself to me in the act of taking the blood and the bread. So one of the ways we do that is by self-examination. And if you see any sin in your life, this is a great time for you to say, Lord Jesus, here's, here's what happened this week. I confess this. I repent of this. And I'm going to come to the communion table, Lord, ready to celebrate what you've done in my life. Um, if you want to light a candle and celebrate answered prayer as you come up and do that, that's great. But you come as you feel led to the communion table and celebrate the life that has come through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus.
was crowned with thorns, is crowned with glory now. The Savior there to wash our feet, now at his feet we God has robbed the grave. 
that you who are our anchor and who keeps us secure also stands at the finish line and uh, we, we rush toward you Lord um, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith Lord you are you are the one at the beginning you're the one at the end you are the alpha you are the omega and we just we just thank you Jesus that we can enter into your presence and acknowledge how great you are for us and Lord, we acknowledge how we want to be committed to you in every facet of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.